we've been missing you. Do you want to find the witch friends you've been missing? Do you want to participate in these conversations live? And do you want to support the work of recovering a true history of feminist ideas about magic? Do you want to hang out? Do you want an invite to Zoom together with Amy and myself every new moon along with our hilarious, diverse, wise, queer, creative, anti-racist, science, and awe-loving coven? You must join the Missing Witches Patreon. It's pay what you can, and we can't wait to meet you there. Patreon.com slash Missing Witches. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. Hi, Judy. I'm Amy. Hi, Amy. It's so good to see you. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. I love to talk about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that's what makes you a great author. So let's just get into it. I want to okay. welcome our listeners, the Missing Witches Coven, to this amazing conversation with an icon of feminist spirituality, novel essayist, author, poet, Judy Grain. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. My family always pronounced it Gron. Gron, and you know, it has a meaning. Uh, it used to be Gronquist, which is Swedish and meant the branch of the evergreen tree. So I'll take branch or tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I believe your work to be an evergreen tree. Uh, yeah. Well, it certainly feeds me. I, I will say I, when you said that you were reading Blood, Bread and Roses, I was, you know, just short of completely ecstatic. It was like, yes, yes, yes. A new, uh, you know, uh, a new lease on something. And let's just all participate as much as we can. Yeah. I have so many questions for you. I hope that uh, if we run out of time that you'll come back and be on the show again. <laughs> but you sort of already kind of touched on my first question um, with this new generation discovering your work. Um, you said in uh, Blood, Bread and Roses that you started the project in 1973. Now, mm -hmm. these are some of my favorites. I don't know if you know, um, for example, Star Goody. We had mm -hmm. a wonderful conversation and I love these intergenerational conversations so much. I think there's so much that the kids today, everybody listening, I'm doing big air quotes, the kids today uh, take for granted and don't understand that there was a struggle that led up to. No, there was such a struggle that led up to this is right. And it's just fortuitous that I was just in it from the beginning uh you know 1965 but i got radicalized in the 1960s and then by 70 we were starting to reclaim menstruation and by we i mean i was writing a, a positive poem about it um not long after that i think judy chicago was doing art installations a huge huge a room a bathroom with a a gigantic tampon leaning against the wall, you know, that kind of thing, where you have it takes you a minute to know what you're looking at. And oh, my goodness, look what we're looking at. Because it had been a hidden subject, taboo subject, shameful subject, all of our lives, 
with no exceptions, really, except in the wonderful little pockets of uh, main, you know, that are out of out of the mainstream and are doing something else because they come from a different tradition. Now, another thing that was happening at that time was the raging Vietnam War. So here was, and it was just bloodshed and the raging war against the Black Panther Party by the FBI. There were shootouts and bombings on um, rebellion on every side. There was blood on the television every night, you know, because they let reporters film the war. So people got a new idea of what war is actually like. And it's only in retrospect that I look back and I see that I started taking on menstruation as a subject, as a positive bleeding in the middle of one of the most negative bleedings uh, that the country had gone through, has gone through many. Uh, so it just made sense that to me now that I would be doing it at that particular time. And, and I just launched myself into it, how not do you, knowing what was on the other side. <laughs> and how do, you, how do you see that landscape having changed between like 70s feminist spirituality and say 2020s feminist spirituality? Well, you know, we have so much more information now. I mean, 70s women's spirituality was just getting going. Z Budapest was just forming her uh, coven down in LA. Max Dashu was uh, doing uh, um, her lectures on, uh, there had been women shamans, there had been, you know, women um, icons and, and there had been goddesses. Um, and she was delivering her talks, a lot of them at uh, a woman's place bookstore, which my household collective helped put together uh, as women's space. Women did not have space, public space to gather. Uh, and it was, you know, a whole movement uh, that we called at that time, Gay Women's Liberation. We started it in late 69. And we did projects that opened up public space, um, opened up a house uh, that was a battered women's shelter, opened up uh, public knowledge about uh, the health center that was doing abortions and many other kinds of health interventions for women. Uh, we were a busy group. <laughs> yeah, you, you just used a turn of phrase that I love so much. I'm going to carry it with me. Household collective. Yes. Can you can you tell me and our listeners about your household collective and how we can make these ourselves? Well, we have to bring the house uh, prices down, don't we? <laughs> have uh, one of the things that worked so well about our movement was that housing was really cheap at that time. My, you're going to die over this. My rent for a room and in our house every woman had to have her own room that was a rule a room of one's own yes. <laughs> uh, and my rent was 60 dollars a month that's six oh okay it's 10 times six dollars all right <laughs> yeah. yes if only um and another thing that worked about it is that we were a mixture of classes so there were women with resources mixed in with women who had 
you know, never met a resource in their life. And so uh, all of the wisdom in that range of people got to play together and it was very dynamic. So that would be my first thing is get over the rivalries, get over your prejudices and realizing that bonding is what makes a revolution happen. You know, loyalty to each other, okay? I'm just taking a moment to write down bonding is what yeah. makes a revolution happen. Mm -hmm. Oh, please talk more about that while I write down this well, sentence. You have to be loyal to each other. You have to turn out for each other. You have to listen to each other, even though there's never seems to be time to do that. But you have to try to take the time to do that. Um, and of course, it has to be congruent with this mystery called history. <laughs> so prepare for it because that moment is going to come along in your life. You know, we know it is because there are so many things going on that are wrong. And, and we knew them all then too. We knew uh, what uh, the racism was all about. We knew the, the suppression of uh of people of color and we were struggling about that. We knew the, the bad things about the war and we were struggling about that. Uh, we knew you know, all kinds of civil rights needed to be acknowledged uh, and that women had to fight for what they had. Uh, and the LGBT movement didn't have its alphabet yet. We were just all gay. We we're all gay to begin with and we became lesbians and gays for a while and then we became lesbian gays and bisexuals and then now we've got trans folded all the way in and we've got um more to the alphabet so it's ongoing it's an ongoing process it's a revolution that got started in that era um and with roots in the 50s and has never stopped from my point of view so i was writing a train called revolution <laughs> and and what did it consist of what did i need to do how could i contribute and so i had done uh, a, a lot of my early poetry by that time and that was really spurring to people there were several of us poets who were you know busy organizing with our work <laughs> And then I just jumped into menstruation because I wanted to answer the question, what have women contributed to human culture? Because the mainstream stories were saying nothing, babies, they were saying babies, <laughs> uh, you know, continual approval of uh, men and children and so on and continual shut your mouth and just do your work. Yes. Be kind, be kind, be kind, and don't make a fuss. So we made a fuss. <laughs> so we made a fuss. <laughs> Indeed. Now, I just started reading your uh, memoir, A Simple Revolution, so you'll forgive me. I just started it. But I think it's like on page two or three, you call activist art your demon lover. <laughs> and I just had to stop. Can you please expand on that notion for us? Wow. Well, let's see. <laughs> I mean, sure. It seems um, like uh, 
uh, just one of those metaphors you grab out of the air because I was wanting to say something paradoxical because it is paradoxical to take on trying to be an activist artist. It is walking a tightrope because if you fall in either direction, you lose track of this main beam that you're trying to put across that's coming through you. Um, you don't want to be polemical and obvious and lectury and I'm right, you're wrong. Um, you want to be honest, but you also want it to be artful and you want people to say, I have felt like that. That's how I think, or I think differently than that. And I'm going to go write that down, you know. <laughs> so it's a, it's a challenge. It's you have to be more conscious and then more unconscious at the same time to do the pieces. All right. Yes. <laughs> and I think that that's part of the great paradox of, you know, witchcraft, as we call it, or yes. There is another paradox. Where did I have that word in my notes? The, the great paradox of menstruation, I think you called it. Yeah. Yeah. How the paradox inherent in menstruation. That's that's the exact quote. What's the paradox of menstruation? I think it's that it's so foundational to who we are as human beings. And it can be and has been and is being interpreted in so many radically different ways it's like <laughs> the same uh, you, you know any any group of people and you start talking about their experiences with menstruation it's going to have to do with their generation it's going to have to do with um, their religion it's going to have to do with so many many things and what era is it and what is needed now and so on it's just like that so, I mean, I'm jumping around. I didn't get to the women's household question that you asked me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I will say that in addition to, you know, cutting across class things, class boundaries, that's what enabled me as a working class person who, if I quit my job for even five days, I was suddenly in trouble. And, um, and yet I wanted to devote myself entirely to this movement and to this, uh, this artful work, which you can't depend on it, just turning up and, and making a living for you. Art doesn't do that. It's, this, um, it's like a cat it hides under the couch and it's like, well, when is it kind of come out and play with me? <laughs> but we had households and those households helped even out the, uh, the economics and they also formed the bonding that we needed to do these projects and the projects were very very important and it was um because i had a room of my own and enough support um, by that i mean just enough financial support to get by you know maybe it wasn't maybe it's tuna fish sandwiches you know a lot but that's okay if you're doing something that you love that's really meaningful to you and you think you're making the kinds of changes that you and your generation need in order to even survive. And that's what we were. That's what yes. we were yes. up against. Yes. And it, so, it's, it still feels like that. Of course. Sure. It still feels like that. That's right. 
um, because the things that surfaced as problems in like the 60s, like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, making us aware that, oh, human beings are a problem to the planet and to ourselves by the everyday stuff that we do. And now what do we do? So the questions are enormous, but the solutions are right there in front of us. They're not that complicated. They just require some attention. And that means heads out of the sand, <laughs> look each other in the eye, say, what is important to do? What can I do? What steps can I take? And they're going to be one step at a time. They're going to feel small. But you do them because they add up. And they aren't small at all. They're what makes it change. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think <clears throat> feeling small is um, what is expected of women. And every time a woman yeah. does not feel small, we get world-changing. Yes, totally. So now to menstruation, you know, my mother had wanted to, she was interested in science. So I thought, okay, if I take on the subject of menstruation, I'm going, it's going to run me into science at some point, because it is, I already know, connected to calendars. So connected to the lunar cycle. So it's got to be connected to calendars and it's got to go back in time. And of course it does, it goes back to markings on Paleolithic bones that uh, give every indication of being markings of a menstrual lunar cycle of a time that we are supposing um, that women's uh, cycles were completely synchronized with the lunar cycles. So I just started going back in time, talking to people, reading everything I could get my hands on, and just putting the witchy vibe out. Menstruation is mine now, so give it to me, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Get humble, right? <laughs> but not too humble. Yeah. And people start bringing you their stories and they bring you this article and that article and this might connect and whatever, whatever. And here I am part of this generous movement where people wanted their artists to succeed. You know, they wanted the people with the public voices to know things. So they just show up and that continues to happen. I heard you heard, I heard you needed this here, you know. And I don't even remember where it came from, but here's the perfect article. So my research and the library, and we didn't have the web. We had a lot of word of mouth and the bookstores, which were our library, our college, our performance space. <laughs> yes. yes. And so I started with it and not having any idea what was on the other side of it. I thought probably something minor. It's going to be like connections to science like that. And I, I mumbled along with that. I mumbled along with it. I mean, I would talk about it in my public presentations, which were like 85 of them a year or something at that time. Um, and people would bring me stuff and somebody would tell me, well, when we were 11, we could levitate. 
So, you know, I would ask an audience, how many of you levitated when you were 11? And, you know, 20% would raise their hands or something. And I thought, oh, this is real. This has got to have something to do with something. And, um, you know, other kinds of questions. So I wrote notes, lots of notes, and, and just started um, from 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 questions just from questions not like i had answers or preconceived idea or anything like that i was a feminist i was belligerent about ha 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 we menstruate you don't kind of thing it's not it doesn't go anywhere it isn't the story anyway um and it took me until 19 you know 92 to uh, finish this as a as a book, the one that you said you read, Blood, Bread, and Roses. Yes, I have it right in my hands. Yeah, and there's something close to the beginning. Um, you asked, "Why is God so mean to girls?" And now, <laughs> now, now that you've like reclaimed menstruation as as power, have you uh -huh. changed? Have you changed your thoughts on whether or not God is mean to girls at all? <laughs> I've changed my mind about God so many times, it's really absurd. Um, but yeah, that was my question when I was 11, mm -hmm. was like in 12, and I didn't want to be a girl. And one of the reasons was menstruation, the other was breasts, you know, two of these marvelous things. So writing this, and I had ghastly cramps, just ghastly, 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 ghastly cramps. The kind of cramps girls get when they don't want to be girls, especially. Um, and I didn't see any purpose for it. I knew I wasn't going to have kids. Why should I even have periods? The same questions that come up now. Only now people can actually do something about it and say, well, I don't need this. Goodbye. But my research, which happened, I was 33 when I started this, and 52 when I got it published. Can you um, say that again, please, for everyone who's in such a hurry yes. right now, please say that again. Well, I was 33 when I started this process of researching, which I thought would take a couple years. <laughs> And even after I had sent, I, I, I published an early article that was menstrual positive. Uh, and I used that and got an advance from Beacon Press in 1981. Uh, but I didn't turn the book into them for another 10 years. Because <laughs> it wasn't finished yet. I had to go through massive changes. For one thing, I had to step out of feminism. Interesting. Please expand. Yeah. I had to step away from feminism because, as I say, it was making me belligerent, was making me want to say, ha, 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 we menstruate, you don't. And that's a diversion. It's a diversion from what I think actually has happened. So that's, that's how... I went through so many different changes uh, behind all of this and wrote other things before I finished up this one. I, but I just, I had to change um, perspective and it was no longer 
how did women contribute to culture? It was how did menstruation create the world that we yes. are, of who we are, all of us, everybody, men, women, children, non-binary, trans, everyone. All in there, all the different genders, we all play our parts. And all of a sudden, here was this theory, here was something that could develop. It's not all in Blood, Bread and Roses. There's a lot of it is in there, but not all of it. It continues to develop. There's more articles, there's a dissertation that I did. Um, and I'm about to write another set of essays that will get published. <laughs> Because it's not done yet. It's a process. Yes. And the work, I believe, will never be done. You no. Know, you, were, you worked on the book for 10 years, and even then, it, it still wasn't done. We're still adding yeah. more and more and more to the conversation. That's right. And more and more and more people are absorbing the idea that menstruation does not have to be uh, uh, the curse. It does not have to be God is mean to us and has cursed us but rather it can be something uh, very, very different from that, that connects us to nature, that connects us to our ancestors, that connects us to understand creatures differently, um, like that. Yeah, I, I see uh, Blood, Bread and Roses as being um, a, an excellent compendium to uh, the Great Cosmic Mother. Monica Show and Barbara Moore. That was sort yeah. of where I started to get these like, paleolithic notions of of women's contributions you know we sort of had been brainwashed into this notion that you know cavemen would smack cave women over the head and that was the end of the story of you know human development but when we talk about things like language and you know uh, con controlling fire um, it makes sense that it would have been the female of the species who was interacting with one another more so than yeah than the hunters yeah i would say I so say. i mean uh, why is it just patriarchal power hungriness that has created this shame and erasure around the subject of menstruation that is such a great question, and it's one that I want to put in an essay, so I'll just give you a short answer. Yes. That um, I've come to understand that the patriarchy is, um, is a, a braiding in evolutionary process. I'll explain that more. Yes. I think that um, the first apes that became human beings developed um and they developed rituals around menstruation the word ritual means menstruation so it's redundant to say that they they produced rituals around menstruation that enabled them to survive out of the trees even though they were bleeding and that gave them knowledge and these and pieces of knowledge that had to be held in place um, and so they acted them out. I call those metaphors, these pieces of knowledge that have had to be held in place. And, um, and they, develop, and they uh, gradually developed culture 
out of their seclusions. The women and girls did it. They had their own. The men and boys did it also. Why? Because they loved their mothers. <laughs> you know, they wanted what their sisters were getting. They wanted to belong. They wanted this new language too. Um, and so they had their own blood rituals, which we call hunting. And uh, those elaborated and created culture as well. Um, but those two ways of bleeding are very different from each other. So I'm hypothesizing that these rituals developed along gendered lines in general. And they, they reach a point, I'm holding my hands up to illustrate, these strands, they're parallel strands. The women are doing something, the men are doing something. They're both getting smarter and they're both getting not knowing what each other is doing because men were excluded from uh, certain parts of what women were doing. And the reverse was also true. Um, so I'm positing that there's a braiding that needs to happen every once in a while so that um, these two cultural lines understand each other better. So I'm assuming that the patriarchy is one of those braids that crossed over. There was something that men needed to do and to learn. Um, and so the women said, okay, you've been holding back while we do all this, and we're gonna hold back while you do all this. And the patriarchs put their rituals forward and they studied um, male development, which is what patriarchy is all about. It suppresses women, we know that, but it also develops men. And that's a part that I don't think has been addressed. And I, I want to at least start the dialogue about that, that, okay, this is a development of the maturation process of males. And we've been in that for a while and what has happened is, I call it necroformic, is that, and it happens in the women's rituals as well, they, they've been absorbed because we're a learning species, right? We learn, we study. Um, and, um, and so the women's rituals aren't serving everybody because they, they've been absorbed. And so what's next, what, what, what? And the, so the men say, okay, we're next, we're doing this. And then they develop, develop. And now we're in a place where we're saying, oh, you all have had plenty of time to learn this and it's causing great harm and it needs to change. So that's where I think Blood, Red and Roses comes in to suggest the pattern and now how do we change it? And we change it because we are ritual beings and because we hold our knowledge in particular ways. So we've changed before, we can change again. And we're in the process of it, we really are. We're not as patriarchal as we've been in the past, right? And religion has held a lot of the patriarchy in place and it's being questioned on every side including by missing witches, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but also by people in the mainstream who are saying, or in the evangelical 
community were saying, you know, this is just too mean. <laughs> God is being too mean to girls, you know, kind of thing, and too mean to uh, LGBT people and too mean to people of color. And so something has to change. So we're saying, oh, what about all these goddesses? This could be a change, right? <laughs> And we try to define them along lines that say, okay, this is earth-centered. This is not sky-centered, earth-centered. Hello, we don't care if you take a rocket to Mars and leave, goodbye. We're doing an earth-centered something right here, right now, and that's part of our change. <laughs> so my short answer got long. <laughs> yeah. We love a long answer. Please expand is one of our <laughs> mottos around here. <laughs> we love to expand on these ideas. So how, I'll tell you a little bit about me. Um, there was no conversation around menstruation when I was growing up, really. Um, uh, except for that we didn't talk about it. And you knew that there was a shame. You knew you didn't talk about it, but you didn't even talk about it enough to really say you don't talk about it. It was just- Yes, I know. Yeah, <laughs> so very, right, right. Yeah, it was very under the Under the ground, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for me, it was um, hellish. You know, they told me you'll bleed for about a week and it's going to hurt. And so I accepted that. And then I- was bleeding for 10 days and in enormous pain you know mm -hmm. a full third to half of my life was being taken up by uh either pms or or raging horrible but in my mind you know they said it would be about a week at 10 days is about a week they said i was going to be in pain well this is pain so i guess this is just and i think it happens with a lot of women even when they go and see their doctors about it it's just like well that's your lot in life is to, to suffer. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> I, I will say that um, as, a, as a 40th uh, birthday present to myself, I started talking to my GP and my gynecologist about ending this. I, I ended up having an ablation, which for those listeners who don't know, they basically just burn out the inside of your uterus so that you stop bleeding. You still have a menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. But you stop bleeding. And for me, this was, you know, I, again, like I say, I was 40. I have no children and they, they weren't in the cards. And I said, I just can't, I can't lose a third of my life to this anymore. Right, right. So um, I have a leading question, but let me just start by saying, how can women whose experience was like mine, where they, they, they couldn't find them out if I mean I didn't know your book existed and maybe if I had it it would have changed my perspective entirely so if your answer is read bread blood and roses that's okay too but how do how do we who are suffering terribly like find the magic find the ritual find the earth connection to something that is just interferes with our happiness right it really, really does. So I think that there's probably a lot of, of answers to it, and some of them just lead to more questions. And uh, this is not to disparage uh, what, this, what the surgeons and doctors are able to do, but it is to disparage what the religion does to us. Because when you talk about, you know, it's your lot in life to be in pain. That comes from the religion. 
So people who are indigenous and don't have this religion, have a different religion, have told me out of their communities, probably, I don't know if it's every indigenous community, but it's enough of them to be noteworthy. Um, there's no such thing as menopause. Think about that. That um, there's respect for women, the older we get, there's more of the respect. Um, one woman told me in her group, uh, which used to be called a tribe, and I, I know we don't use that language anymore, but um, she said, a woman is not fully mature into her powers until she's 52 years old. Okay. <laughs> marking that on my Are calendar. Are you marking that or absorbing <laughs> that? <Yeah. laughs> um, and the idea that you go through some agony is just, no, that's not what happens. What the belief is that the menstrual flow that's so crucially important to the functioning of humanity and stems from women's body functions and the culture that has that has grown up around us, that that is internalized and the old women have all of the power. None of it is dissipated in having children, uh, having the blood uh, leave for, for whatever purposes, but it stays with us and just continues to get wiser and wiser. Imagine if that was what you were looking forward to. Now here's the patriarchal version of it, that the purpose of the female is to have kids and raise them. It's not just the Bible, Darwin thought that as well, um, that men had to have been the ones who created culture because women were busy with the children. <laughs> as though children don't motivate you to be as inventive as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and and if, if as if raising children doesn't influence culture based on how you raise them, of course, it has sure. nothing to do with it. Adults are not yeah. Yeah. created by their parents at all. Of yeah. course. No, right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, uh, and let's see, where was I? Remind me. We were talking about um, the church and women are just meant to have children and even Darwin. Yes, exactly. And... So, so both the church and the secular science were fixated with this idea that women didn't do much of anything except be very beautiful, as beautiful as possible, as fertile looking as possible for as long as possible and never did get old and raised the kids and became a wonderful grandmother and isn't she darling? And though, you know, don't get me wrong, raising kids is an amazing process, which I have skipped over because I had other things to do. My books are my kids and they rule my life. But I watch uh, parents, all kinds of parents, you know, I cannot imagine how they are getting through COVID, having to homeschool and work at home and, you know, take care of all, everybody's terrors about all of this. It's no wonder here in the US especially, people have lost their minds, many, many, many of them. But my point is that uh, the biblical teaching was that Eve had disobeyed God 
And God punished Adam and Eve, threw them out of the Garden of Eden. Um, and Eve especially was cursed to give birth in pain. And, you know, her menstruation was a shame. And, and she uh, did it in pain. And I heard this from women who were raised in the Christian traditions that taught that quite explicitly. So it's no wonder that, you know, we suffered all kinds of agonies and pain. I did not want to be a girl. And every month I would remind myself of how much I didn't want to be a girl. My own thing was highly motivated to write Blood, Bread and Roses, not just because my mother was interested in science, but because I suffered horrifically just as you did and lost many days, uh, you know, every month, had to lie down, had to be quiet. Well, we don't do seclusions anymore. In seclusions, you lie down. People bring you food and water. <laughs> you dress very simply. You're supposed to dream and not tell your dreams or tell your dreams or, you know, stay there for long periods of time and get trained by your grandmother or some wonderful older female considered exemplary as kind of a school. Um, but you're not being punished. You're in a seclusion and you're supposed to be quiet. You're supposed to lie down. You're supposed to do all kinds of other things, which I know it can be pretty horrifying in reading the various restrictions that women put themselves under in formulating their rituals. But then I'm saying those rituals and those restrictions became cultural objects. For example, there was a lot of separation between various aspects of menstruation. So she might uh, not be allowed by her group to let the blood fall onto the ground, it had to be caught by something. So the something had to be invented to catch it. <laughs> she might not be allowed to touch her body. And so gloves were some something that was wrapped around her fingers that would become what we know of as you know elbow length gloves at the movies um, were invented because of that so there were all kinds of ways that the rituals retained and captured by um, by patriarchal researchers from our mainstream cultures in the 1800s and 1900s that those if you look at them they're they're like the basis of who we are as human beings in there in there in there in there um one after another so i would say okay the gloves are metaphoric because gloves show up in menstrual rituals and they have something to do with the development of human consciousness they're metaphors, I would say. I would, you know, I would say that of all kinds of, of different things that we develop to solve for uh, ways that uh, we were developing a particularly human consciousness and using menstruation to do it. And 
and related blood rituals. The men were doing it too, similar things. Does this make sense? Probably not. But if you read Blood Run Roses, it will gradually come in because I'm having to be all over the map. This information is not readily available. You have to search for it and you have to make the great leap of saying, all right, I see what it is with carrots. I see what it is with the food. I've done this whole study around food and what we call food. And it's, it's so much of it is related to menstruation. It's like, how is that possible? But when we think why menstruation was so sacred, it's, it goes something like this. The menstrual blood stayed in the womb. And when she was ready to have a baby and the goddess in some form said, okay, go, the, the blood would form up into the baby. There was no sense of eggs yet, but they needed the microscope to be seen, right? Sperm, no such thing as sperm. Sperm needed the microscope to be seen, but people incorporated men and women together into this whole fertility cycle anyway, um, and menstruate, but menstruation was this substance that would form up into something else. So they saw that Okay, the red ochre in red clay could be formed up to turn into something else, right? Red stones, red this, red that. And, you know, red flowers, let's bring those plants home. And one of those plants was the carrot plant, which was inedible to start with. It was just a thorny little root, all dried up. And they just started, but they were using the flowers for their rituals, for tattooing, especially, which was a marking, a, ling a linguistic marking at menarche, at first menstruation. And they just began selecting for these red, long red roots. Anyway. Yeah, I have, I, I've had so many questions that came up while you were talking, and I'm just trying to decide what order to ask them. And sure. I guess, I guess most broadly for, um, you know, we talk a lot about like prehistoric people and, and how they informed culture. So why are metaphors and rituals still so important to us today? Oh, well, yeah. Well, I've, I'm a poet, so uh, working with language is my job. And crossing into everybody else's field and fearlessly stealing from this one and that one and the other one is also my job. And I have, you know, taken it to the max. Uh, and to have a language to understand so you're not, I'm not just saying, oh, women were important because women are smart. It's saying, here is how culture developed. Here is how we got all these things that we're calling culture that make us different from the creatures. And we are very different from the creatures in so many ways. And all those ways I'm saying are metaphoric. So one of the uses of it is that it helps me understand that creatures 
are just like us, except for the fact that we're metaphoric and they're not. And that gives me a tool to examine my whole relationship with creatures and how I think about them in terms of, I know what makes me a unique ape, you know? <laughs> and I subtract all of that and I'm left still with a person looking at a dog person, looking at a spider person, looking at, you know, a mealybug person, looking at a fox person. So that's one thing. Another thing is, as I say, it to me, not enough just to say we're smart because all creatures are smart. They're smart at being who they are doesn't explain anything to say that we did all this because, oh gosh, we're just so smart. I'm saying we did all this because we are ritually based. And because we're ritually based, we can change our rituals. And this is the paradoxical part, is that each community does it differently, which explains human difference. Darwin said he was unable to explain human difference. But to me, metaphoric theory really does describe human difference, that we developed our metaphors along different lines and many of them in opposition to each other. So one group would say, she must drink alcohol. And the other group would say, she must never ever drink alcohol. And those things then became like cultural law that you would kill over it. Hmm? You would not be allowed to intermarry because are the kids going to drink or are they not? You know, all of this stuff comes up. So it starts to answer questions that hadn't been answered and to give us some tools for how do we change who we are? How do we change? And I'm just talking about how do I myself, how have I changed? in my thinking about creatures, just that, just that little thing, one person, one bunch of creatures, how, how do I understand them differently because of metaphoric theory? And how do I understand men differently? Why are they so violent? Well, I know why they're so violent. They're supposed to shed blood. That's been their cultural role through the whole of humanity. And the question is not, must they never ever, but how, what are some other ways that they could do that? Paintball guns comes to mind, you know, yes. paint yourself red and, and, or whatever. I know I'm not, not meaning to be flippant about men's rituals at all. No, of course to not. say that they matter and studying them matters. And here is one tool that can be used to address that. So this is just some. It's just some of what, of what it addresses. Yeah, there's so much. <laughs> You'll need to come back and talk about blood, bread, and roses more. But I, I need to change gears because I have to get to this before we finish. Um, okay. I came to your work through um, Betty DeShong Mador's Lady of Largest Heart. Oh, yes. And yes, you're, you're quoted in the book, as I'm sure you know. And I understand that you have just come out with a book about Inanna, Oh, yes. somewhat recently yes, eruptions of oh Inanna. yes eruptions of inanna can you oh. yes can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with inanna 
Well, the, I'll start again with menstruation. There's another aspect of it besides the physicality of the blood itself, which is complicated and marvelous in and of itself to play with. Um, but there's also energy, the kind of energy that you know causes us to go contort in pain and the kind of energy that flows through us and makes us beautifully creative and radiantly fabulous looking and psychic uh, and in love and our heart bursting um, that uh, I believe the ancients called Inanna, the Sumerian ancients. And those Sumerians, they created writing. So they wrote down all kinds of stories about her. They described the cosmos in terms of um, gods, which are a combination of human characteristics and nature, natural forces, water, sky, um, moon, wind, and Inanna. And Inanna is still with us. Uh, she has a long history, lots of wonderful stories. I took on eight of her stories in my book, Eruptions of Inanna. Uh, she's erotic, aesthetic, uh, justice, um, industry. She's just grand, compassion. Yes. And, and, and but, paradoxical. Oh, totally paradoxical. <laughs> we love right. that. Yeah. yeah and communicative so there's so much to be said about it so much to be said about it and i just got started and it's coming off of betty's work because betty did incredible translations of the very first poet that is named in any tradition whatsoever of writing and hedewana the high priestess of Ur, Ur, hello, Ur. Didn't Abraham come out of Ur? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So, you know, there's a richness, textural richness, not just some stories about some goddess. It's like a presence still with us that the more we know about her, the better off we are, I think. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you talked about taking 10 years. Uh, our, we published our first book, my podcast partner, Risa and I, um, last year, and they didn't give us 10 years. <laughs> but we did, we did have a little wiggle room, and just something you said made me want to tell you this, that uh, when I was writing about Anahedwana, um, I didn't know until we were like two days away from print deadline like that the word cuneiform you know this first language and the word cunt had the same roots and I wrote uh -huh. to my editor I was like you have to let me put this in you have to let me put this in like, <laughs> I promise I'll, I'll keep it like one sentence I'll, I'll, yeah. there's there's so much there that's that yeah tell me the name of your book I'll send you a copy Okay. It's, yeah, it's called Missing Witches. I'll, I won't have you tell me your mailing address uh, on the okay. on the podcast for the world to hear, but I'll I'll send you a copy. For sure. <laughs> All I right. I'd be honored. Honored. <laughs> I'll and, send you my address uh, email. Yeah. Perfect. No perfect. Okay. So, I watched a, a YouTube interview, somewhat recent, with you. I watched it recently. I'm not sure how recent the interview was, and I wrote this down. 
because I want you to talk on it so much. You said people who are marginalized are central to what needs to happen next. And then a little bit later, you said, write your ideas down. Don't be afraid of them. Can you expand on that and, and tell our listeners who are, you know, we've, we've spoken to many other authors about imposter syndrome or all the other things that might make us not write down our ideas. So can you give us a big boost to those who might still be afraid of their ideas and tell us all why they're so important? What is imposter syndrome? What is that? When you you don't believe that you are legitimate, like um, oh, oh, I'm, yes. well, I'm writing this book, but I have no right to be writing this book because who am I? Yes, indeed. Oh, yes. Yes, I have one of those voices as well. It still talks to me nasty like that. <laughs> and I write down what it says every once in a while, read it back to it and say, you know, how many books have you written, you know? <laughs> <laughs> voice that says I'm no good and can't do it. <laughs> that's wonderful. I'm so that's a tactic for that critical voice. Our critical voices are important because we need them when it's copy editing time or the copy editor is saying this whole page needs to come out <laughs> and you go, no, no, no. And then your critic comes in and says, actually, maybe they're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, but think about this this was you know i had a horrific bunch of traumas happen to me in my life a lot of them um near-death experiences coma for three days couldn't talk when i came out of it um you know seeing visions and things like that that i definitely didn't want to talk about having a difficult parents they they were perfect parents for me, but they were very difficult in many ways, as many people are. Um, I'm kicked out of the service. I mean, I had all manner of radicalizing events that could have taken me down, but fortunately, I just have this drive to be a creative person. And somehow, as a kid, I got the idea that not only I could be a poet, which is a ridiculous idea, to serve your whole life. What's your occupation? Oh, I'm a poet. No. Well, okay, but <laughs> what do you, you earn do your for money? money? Yeah. <laughs> so somewhere along the line, I got the idea um, that if you walk toward what you're afraid of, that's a very creative place. And of course, that has everything to do with marginalized people as well. Um, you know, if you investigate what marginalized people think about stuff, you will learn something new because the mainstream just watches the news, listens to this and that, and parrots back X. Um, but the marginalized people have to look more deeply, sometimes are retaining knowledge from way before there was a mainstream, you know. <laughs> And so they have answers, answers, answers. Not everybody. I'm not idealizing what that's like, but um, but the marginalized people are ones who can really lead some changes because they're impacted so severely. They've had to get smart. They've had, had to take notes. 
and they've had to use what they were given, not from the mainstream, to survive. So for all those reasons, you know, they carry a lot of wisdom. Um, where am I going with your question? Tell me. <laughs> you're you're encouraging yes, walking toward the fire. Something like menstruation was a huge shame in my life. It was a huge pain in my life that I couldn't explain and didn't understand. And that would put me on the bathroom floor, no matter where I was in Grand Central Station, I'd be lying on the bathroom floor. It was terrible. Um, and working on this book was then like, oh, am I going to shame myself excruciatingly? But at the same time, I just have such a strong feeling that there's something in here. And so I just, I said, well, I've come out as a lesbian. <laughs> I've come out as a working class person. You know, now I'm going to come out as a, a menstruating person who has investigated that. And it was very difficult. When I first took Blood, Bread and Roses out, people uh, didn't want to read it. I would teach it and to my students and my students had been so traumatized by their own periods that we found we had to first work with that. We had to first work that through um, uh, until uh, people who, who had suffered excruciatingly uh, and were very deeply ashamed, we would just replicate, fearlessly replicate some imagined seclusion in which they were treated really well and would wash each other's hands and faces, would, you know, hands on hearts, say little prayers, bring flowers and presents. I suggest you do that with some of your friends. Deliberately redo being 12 years old and then and see what happens, see what it does for you afterwards. Um, so we would go through that, which is just you address the shame. You go and you just address it. You say, I'm ashamed. And why? And what's underneath this? And let's excavate the shame. Let's excavate the fear. I'm terrified of this X. Let's excavate that. And because there's a power in that, and the power is keeping me clamped up against a wall somewhere, unable to move. What is that power? And it's my power to investigate and I'm going to do it and just see what happens. And of course, what happens is a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not saying, oh, wasn't it so much fun to do this book? There were lots and lots of things about it that were fun. There were lots of things about it that were hard that were like, oh, I thought this, but this is telling me something else entirely. And I can no longer keep posturing around thinking that somehow men are a blight on humanity, but rather to say our ancestors chose to live with males and not all female creatures do that, but ours did. What did they know that I don't know? <laughs> that got us where we are, you know, that got us to this amazing place that we are, where we have antibiotics. We have surgery, incredible surgery. The men developed that stuff. The microscopes, the telescopes, that came out of men's rituals. 
I'm not going to throw that out the window. You know what I mean? So it's like not only to face our fears, but everything that we have an aversion to, like insects. That's my new subject is insects. It's like stop wantonly killing insects because they are the basis for life on earth. And if they all disappear and they are disappearing rapidly, we're everything is done for. Forget climate change. Just stop killing insects. Treasure them. Get to know them. Honor them and save their lives. Ooh, do that. Wonderful. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Commonality, solidarity, and difference, even among species. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't want to take up any, any more of your time, but I will ask this final question assuming that you will promise to come back and talk to me again another time. I would love to, Amy. This is Good. Thank you. Thank you. So my final question is, I mean, we have the great iconic, iconoclast poet, author, Judy Grain with us right now. So for those, you and I, we're not mothers, but we can still help people raise their children. Mm -hmm. So in your best auntie, Judy, what would you tell the young mothers who are listening, who are contending with talking to their own daughters about their menstrual cycles? Yeah. Well, I'll say what I know from other mothers that I uh, have known since a consciousness developed that it was from a lot of it from, um, from spiritually based women talking to indigenous women, mainstream ex-mainstream like witches and so on talking to indigenous women about what did you do in your group that was different and then adopting it as well as blood red and roses but other writings as well i'm saying um is uh some people have been in situations where they could take a group of girls uh through a particular kind of initiation with the participation of the mothers and grandmothers um, to give them a different orientation about their bodies, about their abilities. Uh, one in particular in Northern California, there was a shallow river and they put a rope across the river, had the girls hang on to the rope and come across the river. But this is after a year of teachings, various teachings and so on. You know, it would be interesting to talk to those now adult women about did they pass that on to their kids? Do they think they benefited? Were they able to talk about this in other contexts or was it always have to be a secret? But for other mothers, they're going to find the kids don't want this. The kids have been to school and, you know, they have their own language about it. Um, which may be they want to get rid of it altogether because who needs it? Um, and for that, I would suggest that all of us who have any kind of information that's different, write books for the kids. You know, if I would take the time to write what I talked about, but to write it in such a way that it might be appealing to a 12 or 13 year old who then would have a different orientation perhaps toward 
her body and what it has achieved. But I don't know. I don't have some answers. All it's going to be so individual. A lot of mothers, that's a special day, the first day of the period. And so as soon as the kid feels like it, it's a mother-daughter day, and here's the cake, and here's let's go to the walk to the pond and talk. Let's do something special. Let's invite Aunt Emily over and have flowers. Bring your best friends if you want to, but you don't have to. And if you need to keep it a secret, then do that. Because everybody's situation is so different right now. Um, and that needs to be taken into account. Well, also, yeah. the mothers need to deal with it first, because otherwise they're likely to lay their trip on the kid, their needs, what they want. That all needs to be done with their friends, their peers. That's what I suggest that, that you do immediately do that. Make a drum circle and talk about everything. Tell your blood stories. Did you nearly bleed to death with your first kid? Did you have an abortion? Did you um, bleed through your skirt in high school and it was the most embarrassing moment of your life or whatever? Um, just do that. Talk about it and have something that's uh, uh, paradoxical to that. To say, okay, we're going to eat nothing but red candy or the cake is going to have red frosting and we all know what that means and we're going to eat it like that you know <laughs> something like that incidentally for menopause i suggest that too um eat eat red stuff wear red stuff think red stuff in positive ways and just see what changes what difference it might make yes where we're such a, a symbolic, I mean, yes, as, as you we live in our stories. Yes. yes, yes. We live in our symbols and our stories. It's it's what's great about us, it's what's horrible about us both. But we can change our stories. Yes. Yes. Yes, we can. And thank you so much for the decades of work that you have been doing to help people who menstruate and even those who don't um, to change our stories, to change our perspective. Uh, I, we really owe such a debt of gratitude to the, the radical feminists <laughs> who, who took on these ideas when they were very, very radical, you know? when very, very radical and very, very contentious and to sort of have taken the, the heat, taken the beatings for us so that we can have this conversation today. I'm just so grateful for all of the work that you've done and, and taking the time to sit with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really thrilled uh, that you're interested in it. That's, you know, what, that's what an author wants. That's, that's what a theorist wants. That's our favorite thing. It's like, oh, so you're feeding me, believe me, you are. <laughs> that's, that's how our witch energy works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I will be back in touch once I have read Eruptions of Inanna. Okay. And we will talk again. Thank you again so much, Judy. Well, you're so welcoming me. Thank and, you. And thank you to the Missing Witches Coven, as always, for joining us. We love you. Yeah. Blessed, blessed be. Okay. Thanks, Judy. Blessed be. Bye. Bye.
podcast is brought to you by the missing witches coven join us right now on patreon.com slash missing witches blast of fucking bee